Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 904. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by A Game of Thrones Enhanced Editions. Uh, iBooks has an exclusive version of George R.R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones. It's called Enhanced Editions, and it helps you keep track of the storylines and the characters in a way that is fun and interactive, because they are very hard to keep track of. There's so many characters, there's so many houses, there's so many places, and they have these little maps that are, first of all, beautiful maps, and then it tells you like where that character is, what they were doing last time, you can click on their little names and get all the info, it's amazing. Yeah, oh well, it's, especially... Game of Thrones fans have to be real focused. Yes. <laughs> you really have to pay attention. You really need to pay attention. You need to know what's going on. So uh, Game of Thrones Enhanced Editions will absolutely help you do that. Uh, and it just if you're catching up after the last season, yeah. if you I, want to go back and read the book I again. I think I might go back and reread the Enhanced Editions on here because, you know, after we watched the last season, getting ready for the, 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 the next one, I, I want to like reread them and have all that information just to kind of refresh my memory. Well, these books are available exclusively on iBooks. Go to apple.co slash Game of Thrones to check them out. Not available in all countries, but they're probably available where you live if you listen to the podcast. That's apple.co slash Game of Thrones. Uh, we are obsessed and you will be too. So I believe there's some type of a corkboard of the Nerdist community variety. Is that correct? There, 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 there is, and we have a couple cool things on this one this one's really cool so the band nerf herder who's great yep. they are doing a rare east coast concert on thursday october 5th it's a part of new york comic-con it's gonna be at the bell house in brooklyn tickets are only 25 dollars. so if you just go to the bell house's website you can find out more info but if you want if you live in the east coast if you live in new york and you want to see nerf herder this is your chance to do so also uh earbuds the documentary all about podcasting made by graham elwood and chris mancini is now available on itunes amazon google play and more digital platforms if you're listening to this podcast you probably like podcasts so check out earbuds you're in it chris uh Todd Glass is in it. Yeah. A bunch of podcasters are in it. It's a really good documentary. Excellent. And then also, just a couple of stand-up updates. Uh, at the end of September, I will be at Acme in Minneapolis. Um, I unfortunately had to cancel my dates in Tacoma because like a moron, several months ago when I booked them, I didn't check to see when New York Comic Con was happening. And it's happening er- earlier this year than it had in previous years. And so... Oh. Um, I did not. I and I, I am, I'm working at yeah. New York Comic Con, and so I'll be moderating a Walking Dead panel. The Walking oh, Dead panel be there. Fun, though. Yeah. So I'm sorry. I had to. I'm sliding the Tacoma dates. We're going to rebook them. Uh, hopefully for later this year, year early next year, and that'll be at the American Comedy Company in San Diego um, in October as well. So uh, yeah, those are. Sorry, I'm sorry about that, but that's just that's just what happened. I apologize. Uh, this episode is Paula Poundstone uh, comedy. Goddess and legend. <laughs> Paula was one of my favorite stand ups when I was growing up. And the podcast has really just been a way for me to meet heroes. <laughs> and, uh, and so I reached out to her on when I, you know, she does uh, her Live from the Poundstone Institute, which, yep. is, a, which is her weekly podcast. They do those at, uh, at Nerdmelt. Uh, and I believe we're, we're, we're going to continue to do those at Nerdmelt. When you listen to the podcast, it's really funny that you'll see how it plays out. <laughs> But uh, but we but she's I left it all in. Uh, but uh, I'm hope hopefully she's going to continue to do live from the Poundstone Institute there. She's also promoting her new book, the totally unscientific study of the search for human happiness, and uh, and and she's great. And she was a great guest, and it was an absolute pleasure to have her on the podcast. You just, you just don't think when you're you know when you're watching. 
you know, people change your life when you're younger. Like, someday I'm going to sit down and talk <laughs> to that person for a while, uh, and it's going to be cool. And it was. So thank you to Paula uh, for, for coming on the podcast. This episode also brought to you by Casper. Uh, Casper's a sleep brand that created a premium mattress that sells online for a fraction of what it would cost in a store because they don't have to maintain brick-and-mortar uh, overhead. The business works by continuously developing the mattresses using feedback of nearly half a million customers. So their San Francisco R&D team recently developed a proprietary foam that relieves pressure and increases airflow. And people say it's like sleeping on brioche. Uh, so if you've ever thought, like, brioche, what a great sleeping uh, surface that would be, this is your chance. But it's easy to buy these mattresses. You order Casper online, whether you're in the U.S., Canada, and now even in the U.K., and it gets delivered to you in a compact kind of a how-do-they-do-that size box with free shipping and free returns. And considering you spend a third of your life uh, on your mattress, you probably want one that's not going to make your life miserable. Invest invest in your sleep health because it legitimately affects the rest of your life. That's why Casper gives you 100 nights to try it out. And if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and they'll refund you everything. That's 100 that's, nights. That's such a great deal. It then is. You really know if you like it. And, and it means that they're confident in what yeah. they're doing. And it means that you, as a consumer, can buy something with absolute confidence that it's going to be right for you because they really do want yeah. you to have the best sleeping experience. So you're going to get $50 off towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash nerdist. Use the offer code nerdist. You're going to love this mattress. I got one for my mom. Jonah got one too. He did. Jonah got he one too. He loves it. Yeah. He raves my, about my it. Mom was, my mom's real picky when it comes to mattresses. Like, oh, I'm going to get you this mattress. And you're going to love it. And she loves the Casper mattress. So <laughs> it has absolutely made her happy. So $50 towards any mattress purchased by visiting casper.com slash Nerdist. Use the offer code Nerdist. Terms and conditions apply. Thanks to Casper for sponsoring this episode of the Nerdist Podcast number 904 with Paula Poundstone. Katie, we'll roll the thing. Now entering Nerdist.com. Do you want a coffee drink or is there anything I can get you? I think I have it soda and I'm going to take it out. I even have, uh, I even bring, I, I somewhere I have a water bottle. Um, I don't know how the fuck Julie Andrews used to find stuff in her bag. <laughs> <laughs> this bag isn't even that big, right? And I can't find anything in it. <laughs> okay, you're all good. I love your stuff. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You obviously don't do the dusting. <laughs> no, I don't. I, uh, I I don't. Some someone does, and they do an amazing job because yeah, there's a lot of stuff up there. Yeah, because you know, in my own home, I've rethought trash keys a lot from the cleaning process. Well, and also, it just uh, it's fun when you first start acquiring things because it's fun to acquire things, yeah, and then when you run out of room, yeah, you start thinking about how fun it would be to not have things. And so, uh, you know, at a certain point, I will just donate all, the, all of this to, a, to a, a children's hospital or something, who, yeah. someplace where kids would enjoy toys. But uh, Yeah, no, that's a good idea, too. I, in my book, one of my chapters is the Get Organized chapter. And I was distinctly unorganized because, uh, you know, bigger house to smaller house. Yes. It's killer. And very busy <laughs> at the same time, so I couldn't really cope with a lot of that stuff. And I have to say, like, since I did that, um, I then hired another organizing company. It's two women. 
it's more expensive but faster. Okay. And speed is very important sure. in the get organized process because you get bogged down and it's very depressing. Um, but I got rid of a lot of stuff. It feels good, right? It, does, it feels really good. I've been fascinated by a system, and may, maybe this is for the Poundstone Institute, but there's a, there's a woman named Marie Kondo, and she she's, uh, wrote a book called The KonMari Method. And it essentially – I'm not through it all yet, but essentially – Rather than going like room by room and go, I'll clean out the closet today or I'll clean out a little bit because then you'll just acquire more stuff. Right, yeah. She suggests, and again, this is very, this is very global view. I haven't gotten that far into it yet. But essentially you look at something and you ask yourself, does this thing bring me joy? And if it does not bring you joy, you get rid of it. If it does not bring you immediate joy, because you you acquire so many things that you go, I might need this at some point, or later I might, or oh, I don't know. I think I have some emotional attachment to it. But when you actually face yourself with the item and say, do I feel joy in this? Most of the time you will probably say no, yeah. and you just get rid of it. And, yeah. and apparently it's a great way to just purge shit and it's a whole lifestyle that people there's a whole subreddit the KonMari subreddit and it's you know all people organizing people, their shit people like that meet together or something these people I think so yeah it's a real lifestyle it's a real like it's a, it's become a real lifestyle but it's just about finding joy in the things that you have and, and the idea being that most things you just have but you don't have any joy for them and yeah. they actually just create they're just more oppressive to have all these things it is i think some of the stuff is oppressive i i i um and by the way the organizers that i worked with were i think they would leave my home a little bit disappointed in me each time <laughs> i mean there was some stuff that i stood fast on um but you know they can always come back we can always of take course another, another pass at take it. another stab um yeah but a lot of it it did feel good to get rid of and some of it you know some of the some of it is the you, you, you know ex- accepting a time gone by sure and, that, and so there is like a real emotional component to it i mean i'm not a hoarder i don't think but um there is like oh, but that was my kids. Blah blah blah. Oh, there's a you know, and yeah. time 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 gone by, and all the things that go you know all the mm, unmet. You know the thing I, I tell about in the book the games, <laughs> <laughs> all the board games. Some of those games I still have, but some of them you know just there would be like a picture on the box of this. <laughs> You know, this happy family playing the games. I just look at that and go, you know, yeah, how come we never, never, never? Well, listen, the picture on the box is basically Instagram for a day gone by. Like, it's that's a bullshit. That family, the dad is an alcoholic. The mom is probably sleeping with a neighbor. The kids are doing every drug. But then, you know, they posed for that fucking one picture. Why don't they ever show it? (laughs) Why don't they have, like, the dad, you know... Do, just you know, doing a line off a book yeah. just around the corner. But that's the literal know. game of life. Yeah, it's a slightly yeah, it different, is, yeah. yeah, the real it's game, a game of life. life, but the real one. We did have even when my kids were little, and we still enjoy. I mean, the, the last board game that you know, let's see. One of my daughters is twenty six now, so she wasn't at home. But a couple of years ago, when my son was in like a you know a program in Virginia, and my daughter Allie was home for for, for college, uh, and we'd gone to Virginia to visit my son, and we were in a uh, like a little you know ski place, and uh, we played 
the game of life together. I actually brought that in my suitcase, um, and we still enjoyed it. Still makes it they, still you fun. Know, they, my kids love to see me lose. <laughs> they always have, and I think it's one of the one of the good parenting things I have going for me. That's great. Is that I'm I am always going to be. I, I'm sort of more more than Mister Mister or Mrs. Brady. I'm Alice. Oh, what if Alice raised the kids? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, more sardonic Alice, I suppose. But nonetheless, <laughs> I am Alice. And so they, uh, yeah, so they just get a big kick out of seeing me lose. And that was part of what they enjoyed. Like when I was choosing, the, you have to choose like which home you're going to buy at a certain point. Yes. And, you know, my kids had already lapped me on the thing. And so, you know, the only one left was like a trailer. And they were just <laughs> beside themselves with joy. This, I mean, how old could they have been then? Like Allie might have been like 21 and Thomasy must have been you know, 17 or 18. And still delighted. And still this just gave them peals of laughter. Um, and so I can't get rid of that game. You can't, you have to save that game. But what do you do with, because I, I actually, this is, I'm, I'm opening I'm, this I, soda I'm, I'm pleased to. I'm asking for, because I really want to know what to do. I'm asking for advice. But I'm cleaning out a storage unit. And so I found like four copies of Entertainment Weekly from like 2004. I'm in it somewhere. Not a big story. I couldn't, I know it's in there, just a little blurb. But what do I do with those? I can't – I mean, I, I guess in a way it sort of brings me joy. Oh, that's really fun. I was in Entertainment Weekly in 2003 for something that I did then. But then I think, well, what do I need that for? What am I going to do with that? Yeah, well, when I did my bigger house to smaller house, and grant you, I was in crisis, but um, I did – because I used to have this trunk. You know, I had a trunk full of stuff that I had written of like, you know, drafts of stuff that I had written for magazines and same thing, you know, copies of the <laughs> magazines and, you know, not just one copy, by the way, you know, several copies right. of a magazine that one article that I wrote was in. <laughs> and you have to ask yourself, oh, what day did that ever make sense? <laughs> when did that seem like a good idea? Well, just um, you see, you go, oh, my God, I better buy all of these. Yeah, exactly. Why? Well, then, you, then other people aren't going to see it if you buy all of them. It defeats oh, yeah. the well, purpose. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. maybe I, that, that's what I did wrong. <laughs> Um, this this has been so instructive. Already. I, yes. Um, yeah, I ended up, because at that point, I figured, you know, I don't know, just the idea of the Paula Poundstone, you know, museum had, <laughs> by that time, was seeming a little, you know, far off. Maybe it wasn't uh, going to happen. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I think that was the first glimmer I had that things weren't going to go That's quite, so funny to think quite that the way I had everyone, everyone collects things like they're going to open their own personal museum at some point. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. He used this fork. I When I was at, um, where was I? I forget. Um, I got this wonderful tour of, um, I can't remember where the hell I was. Somewhere in D.C. Was it the Congressional Library, maybe? And they had a they had a, a really spectacular Bob Hope, um, what do you call it, like, you know, installation or sure. whatever. And uh, really it was very beautiful because it was about, you know, his USO. One may or may not have liked his politics or may or may not have found his, you know, his uh, movies funny. Um, but uh, that USO stuff was undeniable. It was it was great work right. that he did. And... Um, 
So they had this, you know, wonderful display of stuff about Bob Hope. And by this time, by the time I saw that, I had already given away. <laughs> Fortunately, I had already put in the recycle. Right. Um, not given away, put in the recycle the, uh, you know, the multiple copies of stuff that I had written. Um, but, uh, and as I looked around, I said to myself, well, you know, this works for Bob Hope. I, I'm not sure. I, I don't think someday the people from the Congressional Library will be excitedly taking someone around to look at the Paula Poundstone You know, you say that, but, uh, stuff. you know, the Poundstone Institute is a – could be recognized as – I'm an official, hoping. an official institute. Yeah, so just I really to, am hoping. To backtrack a little bit, um, I, I mean, I was an obsessive comedy fan growing up. I've been doing stand up since '98, but I was an obsessive comedy fan growing up and watched. I was the right age for the comedy boom in the '80s. Nice. I watched everything. I absorbed everything. You were always one of my favorite Thank comics. Uh, uh, I watched every special, the Women of the Night special. That's and, uh, going back a ways. That's going back a ways. Yeah. And then uh, uh, was it um, uh, Cops, Cats, and Stuff? Cats, Cops, and cats, Stuff. Cats, Cats, and Stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, I, but I always loved your comedy so much. Thank you. And I was so happy to see that you're doing a podcast and so happy to see that you wrote a book. And so I just reached out to you on – I direct messaged you and I said, will you please just come on my podcast? That was so great. <laughs> you know, somebody uh, – thank you for doing that. I, you know, I don't usually look at the direct messaging thing because there's a lot of, I think, what do they call that? Like there's a lot of stuff that you're going to click on it and, you, you, you oh, know, you just – spam. E- emptied your bank account. Oh, right, right, right. right. Yeah, 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 there's yeah, a lot yeah, of stuff fishing. like who is this? Why are they here? Well, right. There's a lot of Ray-Ban ads on I there. I did empty your bank accounts, by the oh, way. Oh, well, boy. So. You that's it. So, you know, and you you look well-dressed. Oh, thank you. And thank so you. clearly my, my, my bank account was fuller than I realized. Um, I did, though, the other day. Like, I don't usually look at that. But um, there's one person that I do communicate with that I would call myself a friend of, but not a close friend. And for some odd reason, um, the only... The only, like, access I have to connecting with this person is Twitter messaging. Uh-huh. And so I look at it occasionally to see if she's um for, you know used that method of I've given her my email address that just doesn't, doesn't make use it. any different. Yeah. It just is say. But anyway, so I was on the other day. So what? Um I was on Twitter the other day and there was Eliza Minnelli. Liza Minnelli, the, pit, the little picture, I don't know yeah. what that's called, but the little picture. The avatar. Li- Liza Minnelli had retweeted some stuff that I wrote and I thought, "Geez, that's Liza Minnelli." <laughs> and so I click on it. And I go and I look at this, it's Liza Minnelli. And it uh, looks like it's Liza Minnelli. And it has all these other celebrities that have, that are, their names are there. And so I'm thinking, right, that somehow Liza Minnelli has taken a little liking to me. <laughs> it's, it's totally reasonable. <laughs> Maybe she read one of those magazine articles that I wrote right. that I foolishly got rid of. <laughs> I love that Paula Poundstone. I'm going to retweet her. <laughs> She she was probably just trying to find out if there was anywhere archivally um, those old articles that I had written, if there was any possible... She didn't pay, get rid of that trunk, did you? pay any amount of money, so don't <laughs> let that stand in my way. Uh, anyway, so, and you know, I, I, I wrote her back, and then she wrote me back right away, and I thought, well, that's kind of weird. And then eventually I switched to instant messaging because I didn't want to give out any, you know, personal information over the thing. And so I called my manager and I said, you know, I think for some odd reason Liza Minnelli has connected with me. <laughs> <laughs> my manager 
manager looked at it. She goes, Paula, all the like celebrity names that you see on the tweets, those are all retweets. Yes. So it's it was a it was a Liza Minnelli hoax. That's what it was. <laughs> and you know, time is money, and I'm really busy. And the idea that I spent even a few minutes communicating with a fake Liza Minnelli that person a, put the lies in Liza Minnelli. Yeah, huh? exactly. Right? Exactly. See, you see how that all works? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very difficult to know who's who and what's what. And the verification symbol on Twitter is. Well, she asked me about how to get verified, which I thought was laughable <laughs> because I have no idea. She was like, "How did you get verified?" She said, "And well, maybe I'm, I'm me. First of all, I'm maybe real. in her it." Even in the midst of her fraudulent behavior, she was beginning to feel a little bad sure. about having taken me so bad, so much to the cleaners, so, like that I was duped so easily <laughs> that even the con artist in this woman felt sorry for me and sort of decided to bring up the word verification. Oh, that's a bummer. But it did, did sound like it didn't go too far. So it sounds like it went, it was okay. Uh, I, you know, no, I, I think I might have asked her if she liked ping pong. <laughs> <laughs> So it got that deep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, from what I know about you, you um, uh, were born in Alabama and moved to Massachusetts when you were a tiny toddler. But then did you start doing stand-up in Boston? Is that where you started? I started in Boston when I was 19. Um, yeah, and really, you know, I'd wanted to be a comic all my life, but I didn't know – which door it was, you know what I mean, in the long hallway of doors. I wasn't sure how one became a comic. I lived in a small town in Massachusetts. We didn't have nightclubs down the street. There was no such thing. And so I really had, like, I remember listening to um, Cosby albums when I was a kid. My parents owned, you know, would buy the Bill Cosby albums, and um, and they were very funny. And uh, it never occurred to me that he was in a particular place when he was doing those. Like, I had no idea where he was, like, that it was a club. You know, years later when I listened, I went, oh, yeah, you can hear the clinks of the glasses and stuff. It just never occurred to me (laughs) that there would be somewhere where someone would go to learn to do this comedy Mm -hmm. stuff. And I happened to um, be living in Boston, bussing tables for a living, so it's not like I turned my back on a law degree, um, (laughs) uh, in Boston in 79. And I was so lucky that... You know, a uh, comedy scene somebody started. Um, I mean, obviously, stand-up comedy had been around since before we came out of the caves. Um, but there was a renewed interest. Right. Uh, enough that it trickled down. You know, it didn't have to be in a major city like New York. It could have be in a smaller city like Boston. It, it, it trickled down. And there were a couple guys there that had a company they called The Comedy Connection. And they started, uh, you know... Booking. I remember the a place that I went in Cambridge, and I first saw this uh, the, their comedy shows was uh, it was a place called the Dingho in Inman Square in Cambridge, which is kind of well known among comics. Um, and uh, I had gone with a friend to see her friend's band, and I saw a flyer on the wall. And they only they only did this comedy show every other Sunday night. So <laughs> oh, it had, buried. Yeah, yeah. So it hadn't really taken <laughs> off quite yet. But I still to this day don't know how, where they got the guys that they started with. This would be like um, the, the the Lenny Clark right. years of Boston, and right. he really he was the man in Boston back then. And then Steve Wright uh, um, uh, started like about two weeks maybe after I did. Oh wow! Yeah, it was right back then. And did you when you when you started? Was your 
did you kind of have an idea of what your style was or your voice was, or did no. you just get up on stage and say stuff? I got up on stage and said stuff, um, and not all that well. Um, but you know what I really wanted to be when I was younger had nothing to do with stand up at all. What I what I, well I I wanted to be. Um, I wanted to be a comic actress. I still do, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to be, you know, um, Carol Burnett or, you know, because when you think about growing up and watching television, stand-up comedy was not, well, see, you're too young to know this, but there were only three television stations. I'm old enough to know that. <laughs> and uh, and stand-up comedy was on late at night, with the exception maybe of like Murph Griffin. Right. Um, but largely stand-up was a late-night bill of fare, and my parents didn't enjoy my company well enough to have me up that late. <laughs> and so I was familiar with comic actresses that would have been on at a viewing time that sure. I was, you know, that was accessible to me. So I wanted to be Carol Burnett, or I'm always thankful that I was in the fifth or sixth grade when laughing came on because that was that really was one of the most brilliant shows ever made it was it was wildly silly and stupid sometimes right. at the same time as being very i mean I, I they carried the message about the vietnam war very effectively um and they got away with stuff you know some of the stuff that was on that show you wouldn't find that now what well, was so goofy and also they sort of mastered just ending a sketch when the joke was done. Yeah. Like they didn't, like st- stuff didn't drag. It was like once the sketch was, once the joke got out, yeah. just cut to Nixon. And right. Then- yeah. You, there was no, it's true. They did away. They were a little, they were two variety shows. What, what Robin Williams and Jonathan Winters were to stand up in terms of the segue. Right. They just did away with it all together. Right. You know, we're done because we say we're done. Yeah. You and know? the audience will follow because it's engaging. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It was, it, it, on every level, I mean, it was sort of wild and bright and funny and silly and stupid. And some great uh, comics were there, not the least of which uh, was uh, Lily Tomlin. And I wanted to be Lily Tomlin. Um, I missed by a country mile. <laughs> <laughs> and she gave you a quote on your book. She did which give I me a loved. quote on A my remarkable book. journey. I laughed. I cried. I got another cat. Yeah. Lily Tomlin. Yeah. Yeah. No. And you know what? When you watch Lily Tomlin, I mean, she's so much more now than she was then, even though uh, th- 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 that stuff was brilliantly funny. And I, and I still like her to do those things. Um, but um, now she's done you know just so many more things dramatic acting and uh, and uh you know series and i i always get the name of her uh, netflix show wrong oh frankie and um grace and frankie, grace and frankie or Fra- i don't frankie and my daughter Allie says i always grace reverse it whatever it is i say it backwards she 100% deserves, like her performance in 9 to 5 is Oscar. Did she get nominated for that for 9 to 5? Her performance in 9 I think to 5. She did because comedies didn't get nominated for anything back then. They still kind of don't. Comedies sort of in a lot of ways they don't quite deserve it. I mean, <laughs> who was the guy? Oh, this is terrible, Kevin. Uh, Meany? No, uh, uh, James no, Smith. Uh, uh, no, uh, a friend of uh, Chris Rock. Uh, oh, uh, Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart. You know, when Chris Rock was hosting the uh, 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 Oscars, and Kevin Hart's out in the audience, and uh, you know, it's, it's Chris talks to him for a second and sort of says something about you know being you know like like someday our day will come and i'm thinking in terms of being nominated being considered for um an academy award and i'm thinking okay if kevin hart thinks for a moment that the films he's currently doing 
are going to get him an Academy Award nomination. He's out of his mind. Well, you know what the what the what can happen though is that Kevin Hart can build a foundation where audiences love him so much that you know a director goes, "I'm going to put him in this insane Oscar nom like a real Oscar," and um, he could get it. Oh yeah. no question. But, 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 but no for the question. But for the silly comedies, no. Right, not for lack of talent. That's not what I'm suggesting for a minute. No question about. It. I'm just saying with the bill affair right. that we have going on. Right, like, right, okay, right. That, that's not that doesn't fall into that category. You know and yeah, the, the Academy Awards doesn't have. A category for really silly, and and maybe no. that's kind of great, you know. Maybe, maybe that makes it its own thing. You know I what mean, bothers me about it, though, Paula, is that I think a really solid joke. I think it's I think it's harder to make someone laugh really hard than it is to make them cry really hard because we all like it's you know. You can just tell a really sad story, and if someone is, you know, remotely <laughs> emotional, they'll cry. Yeah, let's but, face it. We're all on the verge of tears. <laughs> all the time. All the time, every day. But a perfectly crafted joke where you can get someone to belly laugh and gut, you know, like a gut laugh is real. especially if you're standing up in front of people or, or, or even in a movie situationally, that's a really hard thing where someone – where you feel like their lives were changed because they – laughed really, really hard. I feel like that's really hard to do. I think it deserves yes, awards. But I sort of like the idea that it's more of a fringe skill. It than, should um, be. Yeah, it should be. It's sort of like, you know, when you go into a really nice comedy club, there's something a little off about it. Like, a comedy club should be a little dirty. There should be yeah. something a little, well, like, speakeasy-esque about it. I want you to feel good about this. There's plenty out there that are. <laughs> <I> know. <laughs> you know, mercifully, that wish has been fulfilled. Um, I, 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 I rarely work in clubs anymore. Thank goodness. I have, first of all, the best manager that has ever walked in the face of the earth, my, my manager, Bonnie Burns. And, you know, years ago, we sort of made a move to not, you know, to get out of comedy clubs as best I could and get me in, like, theaters. Yeah. And the experience is so much nicer for me. I, I, you know, the audience, I think it's nicer for the audience, too, but yeah. in the mainstream. Meanwhile, my podcast, um, I, I have uh, returned to the world of the of the dive. Yes. Uh, <laughs> currently, our podcast is being taped at the Nerdist on yeah. Sunset Boulevard. I know which that. is, uh, you know, it's just, it, it brings back a wealth of memories. I'm sure it does. I, I mean, I never worked in there per se, but it, 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 it has some similarities to many of the places. That well, yeah, I've that's when you know when uh, I started it in 2011 or 12. It was just an art gallery. And Wait, you started that place? Yeah. Hence, Nerdist, Nerd Melt. That's right. I had no idea. I, not the comic book part, but the theater part. I didn't that's know mine. that. Yeah, I started. I it, didn't know that. I started it because you know some rooms just have like a. An accidental magic to him where he just feels like, oh, people come and it's fun. Low and ceiling, high energy. Low ceiling, high energy. There's two posts in the middle of the fucking room. Like, like UCB New York, the, you know, the old new UCB, UCB New York there is like, it shouldn't work. There's two posts in the middle of the stage, but it does. And it's yeah. under a grocery store, and it's, but it does because I think there's something about it where it feels like, you know – Comedy should feel a little dirty or a little unsafe or a little, you know. <laughs> unsafe comedy. I like that. It, it kind of and – it, and it sort of has that like, oh, we're in the back of a room that we're not supposed to be in. Yeah. And so it just creates a really good vibe and uh, 
you know, the really hardest nice places can be tough. Uh, all right, well, first of all, I have to tell you this. So my really great manager, Bonnie Burns, uh, she, um, I, I talked to her this morning, and she says, you know, why? Uh, she says, you know, why don't I look up some stuff about Chris Hardwick, and I'll, I'll uh, send it over <laughs> to you. And I go, well, why, well, why would you do that? Um, and because that meant that I had to read something, you, don't you know. Need to and, do that. I, and and I'm like, why would we do that? I don't know why you do that. And she goes, no, I'm just going to do that. I'm just going to look up some stuff and send it over. And I said, well, if you have anything else you need to do, don't do that <laughs> because we'll be just fine. I don't think I need that. And then, see, this is I'm, I'm by way of saying, okay, uh, Bonnie Burns, I was wrong because I had no idea. Like if she had sent me over this, you know, creator of Nerd Melt, where you do your podcast yeah like how foolish am i that i no, didn't know not that information but see this is what i love about this podcast is that it's a learning situation it's a, it's a learning situation like there's a difference between you know like if you go on the charlie rose show charlie already has your number he's already gonna get shit out of charlie you rose, he's the best he's amazing yeah but i can't get him to interview me <laughs> <laughs> he says i don't know enough about him <laughs> He says, you know, I wouldn't do my homework. You know, Bonnie said on. she'd send you the email yeah, about him, but you said, no, I don't want to notes about Charlie Rose. Bonnie, I don't want to read about Charlie Rose. I don't Rose. need to read I'll about him. Go. I don't need to read about Chris Hardwick. What can, and then I see right behind you, there's a picture of this thing that says Nerdist. Yeah, and I I'm just thinking that. like, I'm just thinking coincidence, coincidence, <laughs> coincidence. <laughs> no. You know? So I'm aware that you do the show at the theater because every, every month I get the breakdown of like, here are all the shows that come in. Okay, well then do you know this? All right. Okay. This maybe you didn't know. They don't want us there. Who said that? I got whoever said it to my executive producer. I don't think uh, to Doug Berman. I don't think that. No, true. they don't want. Oh, no, they don't want us there. They said we come too early and we take up their parking spaces. They showed me where to park. <laughs> I didn't just park willy nilly. They, in fact, the first time I parked there, I got towed. You know, um, I, if if you still want to do the show there, I can fix that in about a half a second. No, I can't believe. That I'm having this. This is like, uh, yeah, I've worked my way to the top, un, uh, unbeknownst to me, to the very top of Nerd Melt. And, <laughs> and the place that doesn't want us. No, and it's changed my feeling. Uh, in fact, last week I parked on that lower parking lot, you know? Oh, yeah, where the meters are. Everyone kept saying to me, why don't you park on the upper one? I go, no, because they say I take up their spaces and I'm trying to leave as small a footprint as I possibly can. And so I just went back and I did the meter like three times. Don't Fine. do that. It's no problem. Here's the thing. So you know how there's like a little hole in the shrubbery or whatever where yes. you can climb yes. up? Yes, So I go to climb up and <laughs> I twist as I climb. This is a and I have a brim on my hat, which I have to have because it holds my brains in. <laughs> and so I don't see the railroad tie. Oh, no. And I smash my head. Into that railroad tie. This is me trying to leave a small... So so what I'm saying is, I didn't realize it was you who I was suing. No, shit. <laughs> you, you could do the show there as long as you want, and you can yeah. park wherever you want. Yeah, sure. Now you say that. You say, you're going to put Miss Simmons onto some phone. Simmons, Simmons, get me nerd melt. <laughs> Simmons. Simmons, get me nerd melt on the phone. Why, Simmons. what's this? First, I need you to exist. Then the, I need you to get nerd melt on the phone. The Boundstone Institute banned from the nerd melt. I know. Well, here's wow. where I backpedal, which is I don't right. handle the day-to-day there. So. Yeah, but, sure. but, yeah, but, yeah but you I can, don't handle the day-to-day make, day there. I can, Right. I can make things happen. Sure. So uh, yeah. you will. You can do your show there as long as you want. No, the I, guy I, has been cast. I will. I will. 
<laughs> I would be honored to have you there. Uh huh. Sure. Boy, you, you, so you really knew nothing about this? I wasn't. No, just, no, no. I no. wasn't walking into a hornet's nest here. By no, 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 no. I really I don't th- know what goes on day to day. Probably there. just me to have a dressing down about how I've been taking a parking space. Not at I have all. One car. No, I don't. <laughs> Is like it a, some kind of double car or a triple no. car? Well, it's a, you know, it's that. Um, it's it's. It's that RV thing that right. I that I bought in sure. the game of life with an airstream at the end of it yeah. too. Yeah. No, yeah. I yeah, I don't I don't really I don't deal with the day-to-day stuff over there. I just sort of oversee everything, but I have uh, a thing that I pull my cattle in. Yeah, Do you that's think fine. That's, yeah, that's yeah. totally fine as long as the cattle's not loose. I got well, you, you can't ride up front the, with you. No, I let the cattle out to graze. Okay, maybe I haven't told you the whole story. <laughs> okay, I understand now about the kind of it. yeah, I apparently we've less, really been in the way. There was grass back there. Is this and more cow Well, I've been yeah, I've been grazing my my herd back yeah. there, and um, I also noticed that there was a there was a Nermel's just turned into a meat locker. There's just like hanging meats in the lockers. That yeah, the, do other shows not do that? Not most of them don't. Yeah, no, we hang our meat uh, over there. <laughs> Actually, it's funny that you say that because there is a little restaurant down the way from there called the Carving Board. Do you know that place? I, I know the Carving Board. Yeah. Oh my God, that food has changed my life. What do you like about it? They have some sort of a it, it, I don't know what it's called. It's called like a butter cake or something, but it looks like a pastry and it has it, it's most it's like a no, it looks like a lemon square maybe, but what it appears to have is the inside of like a pecan pie with no pecans. Oh, okay. And I hate nuts, but I love caro syrup. Yeah. And uh yeah. And that the, so it's all the goodness without all the nutty badness. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's really the focus of my day when I'm going to work on the show at the Nerd Melt. I'm very excited to go because I know that treat is there. I have a friend. I volunteer at a nursing home uh, a couple mornings a week, and one of my friends is um, not you know, that I've met there, you know, over time. Yeah. Right? It's not not on the earth much longer, and so uh, you know, I just try to do stuff that might brighten her very limited life that she has there. And so I had told her about this dessert there. I said, would you like me to bring you one of these desserts? She says, yeah, I would. And so I bring it to her. She's really not well at this point in her life. So I bring her this dessert, and I cut off like a little teeny bite of it, and I give it to her. And then I then I realize, well, she can feed herself. So I slide it over to her. She starts cutting off these really big bites because it's hard to resist. And uh, and then she starts to choke. Oh, no. And I'm like, look, don't choke. If you, if you choke to death, I'm going to get in so much trouble. I go, don't you dare. And she, you know, her face is beat red. And I go, are you okay? Are you okay? And she nods her head. She's okay. And then she takes another giant bite and, and it's choking again I'm like oh my gosh and then finally the third one I go are you okay are you okay and she nods her no she's not okay oh, no. and I have to call somebody in and they she was fine she was fine but that was the other thing I was going to sue you for oh I appreciate so, that, yeah. I, that I, I will take responsibility yeah, this for that whole, as well this whole nerd melt experience <laughs> has really just, put a damper been, on everything it's been quicksand for us <laughs> just all since then but I love the idea that you're like don't choke now oh, just yeah. die in your sleep now Naturally. Yeah, honestly. I'm going to leave. Yeah. I'm going to pretend I had nothing to do. I, I was wiping my fingerprints. <laughs> Digging off, the cake out of her mouth. Off pie the out of her plastic clamshell yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah. 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 I'm it like, say I didn't come here. That yeah. looks very, looks very yeah. bad for you. Honestly, I wouldn't mind going out eating one of those things. No. Yeah. It's a good oh, way no, to go. No, I don't want, you know, I don't want people to know that's... I want people going to pump on diet, eating some buttery thing. That's, <laughs> <laughs> But it'd be really great for the carving board. It's, it's our, our pie is so good. 
yeah, you, yeah, it is to die people, for. Yeah, right, exactly. People willing to risk. Yeah, yeah. You're just your headshot will be up in there. There's just like a wall of people the pie killed. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like well, at the no, cleaners I... when people sign <laughs> like all the. Death. Could you figure that cleaners thing out when you? Because you're not from here, are you? No. Yeah. Where are you from? Tennessee. Uh, where? 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 Memphis. Oh, for heaven's sake! Memphis, sakes. Tennessee. Oh, my parents moved to Tennessee, but what I, part? Um. I'm not sure. Some Clark's other part. Clark something, Clarksburg, Clark's. Got it. Clarksville. Oh, oh, maybe they took the last train. Uh, they, uh, yeah, I don't know. I've never seen them there, but they've been there for a long time. So you can't actually prove that they're there. But. Yeah, no. They st- last I heard, they were there. That's where they had shown. Yeah, up. I didn't. I mean, I, I think I vaguely understood. Oh, okay, well, these people must have come in. I mean, like all the headshots. The thing about the cleaners is, like, they they would fill up their wall with headshots and go. That's it. We're done. We're never changing these. So it'd be oh, like yeah. a, right. you know, be like a faded, super faded picture of like Alyssa Milano from Who's the Boss yeah. era. Yeah, right. That exactly. they would never, yeah. like swap out or yeah. be like, oh, no. we've, you know, we have new clientele. Uh, but I mean, did you, you know, I don't know. I mean, I have had my clothes dry cleaned. In fact, I used to do it quite regularly, and uh, and then I realized that I didn't have to every time. I said, take my clothes to the dry cleaners after I'd worn them once. I don't mm-hmm. know why. I thought it was somehow virtuous. Uh, <laughs> or when I, when I was really broke, I used to do a joke about this in my act, but it is true. I would drive, the, you know, I'd mean to take them with me. I'd have them in the back seat, and then I would forget. And eventually I would just bring them back in the house and wear them again, like as if <laughs> really they didn't need clean. They just needed to go out. <laughs> just spend some time. Like have you just ever been so broke that you did your laundry with no laundry soap? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I remember being so broke that – I would just throw a dryer sheet in. You're just like, well, you can pay for the wash and the dryer, or you can just throw it in the dryer. It's, it's like, and then just get the dryer sheet just oh. to freshen it up. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, I've, I used to just sometimes just figure like even some water would help these clothes, you know, and so right. I put them in with no soap because I couldn't afford the soap. And then, uh, and that was like they just went for a little swim. It is, but that to me, that, that, that what I think is like, oh, the water is just activating the dirt. If you're not washing it out, it's just, it's just giving the dirt some, some, gr- some grounds to grow bacteria on. I, well, okay, that may scientifically be true, but uh, <laughs> it sounds like one of those things. You know how like a commercial will start out <laughs> with real people in it and talking, and then they switch to animation? Yes. You know, like they're going to show you how their vacuum cleaner works. And that somehow makes it more valid. I, it was very weird. I'm like, well, who came up? Then we, then we don't know that that's even true. Right. Um, you know, it'll show like, okay, here's the... Here's the, the, the yarns of the carpet leaning towards, and then you can see the, the dirt down in there. Like, oh, yeah. There's, it's just what you just said about, you know, water simply activates the dirt. It's like one of those phrases they would use in one of those animated, sure. you know, like, you know, our detergent. Why can't I just wash it with water? Water simply activates the dirt. That's oh, right. I'm dumb. And then, and then they show the animated version yeah. of the activated, you know. By the way, the people in the commercial cannot see that animation when it's being explained to them so maybe they're not getting the full scope yeah maybe of, they don't really understand of the, what's of happened. the product yeah i had the other day i accidentally uh, well i did my laundry and i inadvertently left a ziploc bag of dog treats in my pants pocket oh no yeah really bad news and so i thought ah shit i'm gonna have to do my laundry again you know because i washed it with dog treats really smelly dog treats and it was like a testimonial to this ziploc bag <laughs> it, I, I took the laundry out and I smelled it. I thought, oh, you know, and it, 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 
the, even the smell did not get the, – the treats were in the bag. Still intact? It's, well, there was a little bit of water in there, but it, 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 everything was fine. It was, uh, it was pretty – it was an impressive uh, – it was like that old Tide commercial where the, they have the red Georgia clay on the... You're way right. too young to remember that, that sounds commercial. sounds familiar. And she takes the... And the, she had taken the socks. Her kid was playing in the red Georgia clay. And, uh, and uh, you know, he came in and he had his socks on and they were all ruined. And she put them... She folded them up and put them in her purse. And she didn't think to put them in the laundry for like a month. And then she put them in the laundry and forgot to unfurl them. The red Georgia clay. The red Georgia to clay. Me, Did you sounds, have red Tennessee clay? No, but to me, this sounds like a metaphor for uh, capitalism erasing communism. To me. How so? Well, it's red, and oh, this geez. product is going to come in and and make it white. Wow. <laughs> so that's how I've, I... I've never really talked to a conspiracy <laughs> theorist before. The clues are all around you, Paula. I should have let Bonnie Barnes look. look up some stuff about you and send it to me. <laughs> It would have sounded like in big letters, conspiracy theorist who owns, no, conspiracy theorist who started Nerd Melt. But that's my only conspiracy theory is that that Tide commercial was uh, yeah, propaganda. Tide. Commies. It, yeah, that's exactly it, it, what that's talking about. That's exactly what that it's is. communist. So in, so in 1979, you start doing comedy in Cambridge. But then at what point, uh, at what point do you start realizing this is a thing that I can do? Or how are you promoting how are you? Are you just doing sets around town? Then are you featuring for someone on the road? No, 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 not at that point. You know the way they did their shows back then, and I think this is because there was, you know, because no one really had like a big act. There, I, again, I don't know where those first Boston comics came from. I don't know how. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how that started exactly. You know, there has to be a because like trying to find the beginning of 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 of, of the world. Like, or, I, I don't know where or it man. From. Oh, what are we? Yeah. Thirteen thousand years old? Yeah, 14, right. Exactly. Years was old? it the Big Bang or was you know? Is there a God? I oh, they um, found they found some old ashtrays and some notebooks in a pit. <laughs> so this must have been where the comics convened. That's right. Exactly. There had to have been an origin, but I don't know what it was. So um, nobody really had a lot of time. Uh, minutes that they could do on stage and so they what they would do is the person who was the host it, it was the only city that i know of that did it this way the other cities it was the mc is the low peg on the totem pole and 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 uh then there's the middle act and then there's the headliner but the way they did it in boston was the mc was the star and um he, he would introduce the other acts like lenny clark be, yeah and there would be like four or five other acts because and and this would make for a, a whole show and so um you know i didn't get booked a lot I, I i started there and i started doing you know open mic nights when they when they started up and i i really didn't get booked a lot and and it, i don't usually sort of do the the whiny woman card um but I will say, in that situation i I would say that there's some validity to this um which is uh, you know, Lenny, who really did rule the roost, um, he was very popular and very funny. Um, he also was extremely misogynistic. And the audiences that came out to see comedy tended to be Lenny's friends a lot of in course. the beginning. And so this was the style that ruled the day. And so, I mean, I literally one time followed someone at an open mic night whose final joke was, and he was... He was purposely building to more and more gross. I mean, that was part of the joke. But his final joke was, so I was eating out the cunt of a bear. Oh, my God. And let me tell you, 
it brought the house down. Oh, Jesus. And so now I'm, you know, little 19-year-old Paul Poundstone goes on to um, to do what? I, you know, to tell my little witticisms? You know, so there there was – I just didn't get booked a lot, a lot there. And so I started thinking, you know – there must be a world outside of here. Um, Can and, I ask you a question about that before it just to interrupt? Yeah, I apologize. Please. Because that obviously sounds like a terrible situation. Do you feel like there was anything that you that motivated you? Because you just said it made me want to leave that area. You know, because if you can survive in that deep level of toxicity, you learn. Did you learn coping skills as a comedian? From oh, that? I did think you I learn did. Stuff oh, uh, and- no, I think I did. But there were other things. Um, I'm and, preferably and you wouldn't have is, had to have done that. But no, no, no. I mean, I think working in diff- difficult circumstances st- strengthens you and makes sure. you a better comic. Um, but there were other things. You know, it was you know socially uh, the guys who booked the shows, and there was only a couple of guys who did the booking. Um, they booked. The guys they like to hang out with. Of course. And they didn't like to hang out with me. And so uh, I just wasn't going to be the their person. And uh, the truth is, we all sucked. <laughs> we were all really bad. So it would be really hard to say, like, uh, you know, well, I don't book you because you're not very good. The truth is, none of us were very good. Right. And so it really was like a lot of kind of nepotism. And it was more than the misogyny of the temperament that was being built within the audience as well, it was really that nepotism that I knew I would never overcome. Right. And so I thought, you know, so a couple of the guys had gone out to San Francisco um, to uh, do the comedy competition that was out there. And as, as a really weird thing, I, somebody should figure this out, and I don't know the answer. In a number of these smaller cities, I'm not talking about L.A. or New York. I'm talking about, you know, Cleveland and uh, San Francisco and Boston and Phoenix and Denver. Um, this resurgence in the interest of comedy, stand-up comedy, took place all at about the same time in different cities. And I've never quite known why. Like, why did the guys in Boston have the idea at about the same time as the guys in Denver did? I have no idea. But... Uh, they did, and so there were these burgeoning, um, you know, a burgeoning comedy scene in each of these cities, and and there were no really established great comics in any of those cities. We were all really just starting out, and uh, so these guys had gone out to San Francisco to do this, and along the way, and I don't know why they knew to do this either, but along the way, they stopped in these different cities and played places, and you know, back then there was no such thing as a cell phone, and so they were like our. Um, they, they were like frontiers people to us. They were like explorers to the rest of us. So they would call the club uh, at, say, like, you know, 7 o'clock, and all these comics would hover over the payphone, and somebody would talk to them. And, these, you know, they worked in Chicago last night, and they would, you know, they would say to, and we'd all be, oh, they worked in Chicago. It was <laughs> so exciting. It was like they were planting a Boston comedy flag outside wow. of Boston. And, uh, you know, and they'd say, oh, last night they were in Denver. Oh, my God, they were in Denver. And so when those guys came home, uh, I, I talked to them about where they had been, and I got some names and addresses of the, the clubs. And so I went left on a Greyhound bus to go around the country to see what clubs were like in different cities. And I lived on the bus. Um, I didn't have anywhere to stay, and I didn't have any money. Um, you could buy a thing called an Ameripass back then, which was a ticket book. 
uh, cost 150 bucks, uh, and it lasted for a month. And you could have a ticket written to anywhere you wanted to. And it, but at the end of a month, it was all over, you know. So wherever you ended up, if you don't have money to get home, you're screwed. Um, so I would, uh, t- I would take, for example, I was in Denver at one point. I'd arrive in Denver, put my stuff in a locker, my suitcase in a locker, and I had my little yellow day pack. And, and uh I would take a look at the bus schedule to find a location four hours away from there. I would find what was the last time of day that a bus went to that four hour away location and say it was like midnight, right? Then I would come back to the bus station at midnight, take the bus to that four hour away location. When I got there, I would turn around, come back so that I um, had my eight hours. Oh, wow. And then I would be in Denver again the following day. Oh, my God. And I did that for months. Just li- that's incredible. It was. It was. I mean, cool. that's literally being on the road. Like when you yeah. say on the road, you go, "Oh, I'm doing other cities," but you were literally on the road. No, I was on the road, and you know, one night, I think I might have been in Canada. I might not. I can't remember anymore. But I was way north somewhere. You know, way north, and uh, I did my method where I take the bus four hours away. But I went to such a small place that they didn't have a bus station open in the middle of the night. So I'm outside in the freezing cold. I get there and I'm like, oh, how come there's no? And the bus driver's like, yeah, you know, it'll open up at like, you know, eight in the morning or something. Well, my, the bus that it was going to take me back to wherever I was, was a couple hours time from, you know, I had to wait. And uh, I'm sitting outside uh, on this bench outside. It's freezing cold and uh, obviously dark. And, um, I see this light coming from like across a field and it's coming towards me and towards me and towards me. It's obviously like a person, you know, like with a flashlight or something. And I get this idea that I'm going to be attacked wherever I am. You know, like why anybody would think, oh, you know, there's a young girl sitting on a bus bus bench at, you know, three in the morning. No one knows where you are. You can't, you don't have a cell phone. What are you going to? So, so I had a little Swiss army knife, like the kind that just had, Tweezers, a knife, <laughs> could take and an a eye toothpick, out. and uh, so I took out my little Swiss Army knife and I just sat with the blade out. <laughs> like this, this is what I was going to use against the the flashlight bearing rapist that oh, no. had that was somehow magnetically attracted to me from miles away, coming across a dark icy field. This was my so when the guy finally got over there, he, he was also waiting for a, a bus. When he finally arrived, oh, I just sort of quietly put my knife away and. No, yeah, that's when you murder him to make a point. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, yeah, it's like he wasn't expecting yeah. it. Maybe Mess you, with me. Yeah, then you become, then you get to be the aggressor. You yeah. take him out. Yeah, you know, I'm going, I'm hoping to be a middle act someday. <laughs> <laughs> but when did that stop? At what point? Oh, I only I did it for a couple months, and then I, um, and then I landed, so to speak, in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, there was a Boston comic that had moved out to San Francisco, and I was gonna stay with him for a little while, but I couldn't find him when I got there. Um, so I ended up staying with a total stranger. Uh, who was great? I wish I could find that guy again. I don't. I, there was no sex or anything like that. I just met a guy, uh, you know, 
just some people in San Francisco used to be like that. You know, when you got to town, it's real bohemian. Uh, yeah, people would like put you up, take care of you. Like, oh, don't have a place to stay. Come stay with me. There was a like, constant influx of new, ooh, sorry, new people uh, there, and everybody sort of. It was like you had arrived at this experience that you needed someone else to show you through. So uh, anyway, so I did, uh, and my. On that night that I arrived, or the day, the first night that I was there, um, I was hanging out with this total stranger. We took the, uh, and I had almost no money at all by then. We took the cable car because we thought that was a good San Francisco thing to do. It is. And then there was a nice theater there, kind of called Great American Music Hall. Oh, yeah, still and there. Gallagher was working there that night. Oh, wow. And so we decided that we would go see Gallagher. And uh, it was 10 bucks for the ticket. And uh, I, I, that, if it wasn't my last 10 bucks, it was damn near. Mm-hmm. Um, 10 bucks was like a lot of money for me at that point. So we went, we saw Gallagher. We thought it was great. And then, uh, and then we, uh, we, I don't know, we parted ways at some point. And uh, I went, one, I, or maybe it was the following night, I went to the other cafe. Yeah. Um, which was my favorite place. It was like the epicenter ever. of comedy at that point. It was a great place. It was just, I, I, I don't know, part of it had to do with where it was. It was on the corner of Carl and Cole. It was in the Haight-Ashbury district. Um, there was a fair amount of foot traffic, but not so much as to be distracting it wasn't on Hate Street. It was a couple blocks up from Hate Street. And um, the the back wall of the stage wasn't a wall at all. It was a, a, a huge plate glass window. And they used to drop a bamboo shade down in front of it. And like, you know, now it's showtime. And so I would roll the shade up so that I could see the people walking by. And then I would tap on the window and get them <laughs> to stop and talk to me through the glass. And, uh, you know, I didn't have hardly any minutes of material back then either um and so i learned to uh this thing of sort of working the room and working this stuff around you that's really where i learned to do they used to have me host their open mic nights there and that was a great learning experience incredible i mean especially at that time when like you said comedy was sort of figuring itself out and then you know like around 83 84 in the 70s and the early 80s, there were, you know, there was uh, Steve Martin, there was Richard Pryor, there were there yeah, were there were huge, huge comics, comics, right? But there wasn't really like like in the 80s, you had all the evening at the Improv, Carolines, all this right. like, oh, there's yeah. a pantheon. Yeah, it's like you know, you and Emo and Judy Tenuta, like all the all these great diverse voices. Do you remember like when we were kids? Were, like Fisher Price used to have a bunch of different toys where like uh, one of the little figurines would be like a baker and you know one would be you know say a grocer and one would be the mailman um by the 80s one of those little figurines could have been a comic right you know it was like almost a standard job you know when my kids were little um the principal of the school asked me to do uh a comedy, you know, to do perform for them to raise money for the school, which I was glad to do. And um, it was this kind of unique, cool thing. And now in schools, you know, like my school felt good that, or my kid's school felt good that, like they had this stand-up comic for a parent. Like what a great resource that was. Now, um, 
Parents vie for slots <laughs> on the school's comedy night. In every community around the country, there's rivals about which parent goes on and which slot on their comedy and night. the answer I mean, is that probably most of them should not. Yeah, well, it, it's you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a stand-up comic now. But there were so many, and, and that's why it's, you know, when you think about stand-up comedy now, because uh, we just wrapped our, our At Midnight show, which showcased comics every night. There's not a lot of stand-up on television anymore. If you really... I mean, Netflix really? put, you know, like, Netflix is doing this thing now where there's, like, a new stand-up special every week. So they are, you know, they're flooding the market with stand-up specials. But but really, there's not a ton of stand-up anymore. And, and when I was a kid, every night there was some sort of a... You know, one night stand or a oh yeah, the there was a lot. yeah 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 yeah. Caroline, one might or, call it a glut. A glut. There was yeah, a glut. There was a glut. But I think a lot of it also had to do with you know something that was happening in the economy, which is that people had apparently had they were they had disposable income that they were spending on going to comedy clubs, and so there were a lot. There was a lot, comedy was just a thing. Yeah. that people did, but well, that it's died also a in cheap the early show 90s. to produce. It's right. a very cheap show to produce. Right. There's not equipment. There's not you know you can have the same setup. On the stage, night after night, you don't need crew. You don't need. I mean, when I, I work mostly theaters, and uh, you know the production staff at the theaters always seems so sad to see me coming because you know it means that they do nothing, right? You know, there you know there might be a little tape mark on the center. Want to do floor. a sound check? No, yeah. no, I don't. Right, exactly. Yeah, I, I want to do a sound check. You know, it's funny. My my manager. Um, you know, I did. Uh, I did a couple of. Uh, um, you know, I used to do a lot of HBO stuff years ago, and. Uh, um, lucky. I I don't know why. I just was lucky. I guess you know. I did uh, the one that you mentioned, cats, cops, and stuff, and um, and I did another one. The you know, women of the night. Did the eighth annual did, Rodney Dang- Ray did, Daniel Young Comedian Special. Yeah, I did the Young Comedian Special. Yeah, so I did. You know, HBO uh, was kind to me, and and that seemed to work out well. And then I did another one, HBO called uh, uh, Paul Poundstone Goes to Harvard. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I remember the last this. one. Did you and show it um, uh, and uh, so. You know, now every now and then we talk about, my manager and I talk about me doing another stand-up special, you know, and I think what happens is she goes to HBO and they won't have me for whatever reason. And she'll always come back and say, uh, she'll say, yeah, they're really not doing, uh, yeah, they're really not doing, you know, stand-up specials anymore. I'll be driving down the road and see a huge billboard for somebody's stand-up special (laughs) on HBO. I'm like, really? Well, you know, they do. They just don't do that many. The slots are very limited at HBO. Netflix is... Netflix is a great place to do comedy at the moment because it's a platform that people actually will go to and Netflix will recommend to people go, these are the new specials, you like this, you might like this comedian as well. And so it is a place... You know, if you haven't talked to Netflix yet, I think Netflix would be a fun. That place could for be you. the place to go. No, but what was that? You just said we're wrapping our at midnight. Is that what you we said? We wrapped at midnight. Yeah. I, you, you, you're the you're the benevolent overlord of many shows, many places. <laughs> well, I don't know. Damn it! Why didn't I read that information God, was, about you? Because you have it now. I so feel you like you an didn't idiot. need to read it before. You didn't need to read it before. But it, but uh, but just the idea that you know nothing really. Stand-up is such an interesting thing because you can't – there's no way to get better at it without just doing it a ton. You can't Absolutely. get funnier at it without doing it and yeah. you can't build your audience. You, just being on TV does not mean you're going to sell tickets. No, it doesn't. But right. what sells tickets is going through, having new material about every 12 to 18 months, going back, showing people the show's fun. And that's literally the only way to get better at stand-up. There's no yeah. fucking shortcut. No, there isn't. You know, Every now and then somebody will have some sort of comedy class and I, I, I would look, look a little askance at that. 
uh, you know, in my mind anyways, uh, uh, stand-up comedy is a relationship with the audience. And, and you, can't, you, there's, you can't have a class <laughs> to, you know, train you to build a relationship with the audience. It just doesn't right. make sense to me. Right. I, I, I don't see that as a, as a viable step. I see it as sort of a sidestep to avoid diving into the cold water of, <laughs> you know, the potential that you're going to go on stage and just eat it, um, which, you know, I've done many, many times. And, and the good news is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still walking and talking, you know. Yeah. That butter cake didn't, didn't kill me. Well, um, it, it, you know, you can live through bombing. But yes, and once you realize that that the worst thing that's going to happen is you're just going to sit in your car afterwards and go, "What? I, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. What are all my life choices?" But then you wake up the next day and go, "Yeah, I got to do this again." Then that, that's the worst that happens. Yeah, it's, oh, it's true. Unlike you know, as a musician, you can practice and practice at your house. Yeah, right, and you can get pretty darn good. Um, but as a comic, there's just no other way than going and doing it. Which, by the way, means that audiences have to really live through some horrible stuff sometimes. <laughs> but I think they They're like part that. of the process, yeah. though. It's part yeah. of the process. But if you can learn from it, it's good. Yeah. But, your, but your style, I mean, it, 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 in the 80s at least, you were, you were saying things, you, you talked about things that were uh, curious to you. But I didn't get the sense that anything was deeply, deeply personal. Was there? I mean, maybe I'm not correct in that. But did, did you feel? Did you feel like? Did you feel like in the '80s it was like, oh no, it was more, you know, like now there's there seems to be a more of a trend of like I'm going to reveal my deepest flaws and emotions. I think that's so funny that you asked that. I did. I'm I'm doing some job coming up on. I don't know what it is, but they had written to me asking me to answer a couple of questions for their social network promotion, and they said. Uh, one of their questions was, what is it that fans, is there something that fans don't know about you? And I wrote back and I said, you know, I, I have reached a terrible conclusion as a result of that question, which is some self-knowledge that isn't all that pleasant, which is there is nothing that people don't know about me. I've been at this for 38 years. <laughs> and so I have revealed Everything there is, for better or worse, right? right? Everything there is to reveal, and I think some of that. I mean, when I perform, one of my favorite kind of laughs is the recognition laugh. You know, the one where people go, "Oh my gosh, I have that." And some of the, I remember years ago before I had my very great manager, uh, Bonnie Burns. Uh, um, I, I had other managers, and they used to say to me all the time, because I would say on stage that I don't like sex. And they used to take me aside and go, all these guys, you know, and they go, oh, you know, I don't think you want to say that. That's a good thing to say, you know. And uh, and I kind of wonder, well, why isn't it? I, I don't see it as all that horrible a thing to say. But they were just sort of convinced that you, you know, this would be so alienating. Like, crowds wouldn't relate to this. Well, I have to tell you, I, I, it's not like 90% of my crowd doesn't like sex, but I'll tell you, there's a small percentage of my crowd who doesn't, don't, also don't like sex. I remember this joke. Didn't you see, it didn't have something to do with, like, uh, something about when done correctly, it's a disgusting, uh, there's something uh, about... I think that's probably somebody else. No, no, no. Because no, I've never done it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> but in the description, I can't, I can't even speak in, in to the, doing in, it in correctly. the description. In the description of why you don't like it, was there something about? Oh, uh, I can't remember. It's- I, well, I mean, I've talked about it in various ways o- 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 over the years. But I guess my point is just that 
a lot of people just plain think it's it's funny, and I make some jokes about. It. I talk, for example, I I, uh, I say that, and it's true. I was in uh, Utah, and I was making fun of the polygamists, and and all of a sudden, like a light went on in my head, and I thought, you know what? Why am I making fun of these people? You know, honestly, polygamy might actually work for me uh, because I could get someone else to take my shift. I could just be like doing the dishes. I could say, no, you guys go on. I'm fine. No, happy to. You go ahead. I'm, I'm off. I'm off in five minutes. Yeah, it's not yeah, going you know to clock out. Just yeah, take, take, take my turn. It's really. Um, so I do jokes about that and, and people laugh. But there are people in the crowd who go, oh, my gosh. I'm not the only one. And that is, um, there's something about that that is so, I mean, laughter is just the greatest thing in the entire world one way or the other. But there's something about someone being able to identify with something that I said in a way that makes them feel less alien and more belonging that means more to me than anything else. It, you know, I, I sort of value that more than I value, you know, I mean, I, I probably have some of the funniest airplane stuff ever written, I would think, um, just because, you know, I started doing it when they first invented the airplane. So I've, <laughs> I've been at it for a while. But that, that thing where somebody goes, oh, my gosh, it, it, I, I thought it was just me. So the my assessment was not correct. You, you, you actually you, – you do express deeply personal things on I stage. Do. I don't know that I always did. I think I do. Um, uh, I think I do. I mean, I told this story about attempting suicide when I was young. Who tells that? I guess that's deeply personal. Yeah. Stood up on a couch, tied a cord from the curtain around my neck, jumped off the curtain, the couch, and the curtains opened. And uh, that is a true story, I swear to and you. And were there people walking by and you talked to them through the glass? <laughs> no. I'm just hanging. What do you do? Hanging. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, did you was it when were you actually convinced that you wanted to go through with it or was there a part of you that I was actually really young when I did. I mean, I was a kid when I did oh, that. Gotcha. But I've told the story that I was an adult when oh, I did. Okay. But I <laughs> but I mean, I matters. was uh yeah, I mean, as an adult I would have pulled down the whole um, you know, the of whole course. the whole rigging. Um, but no, I think I might have been 5. And did the um, wow. Yeah. No, and by the way, they say kids like young kids that I used to always hear that young kids, that the, the concept of suicide is beyond them. That's not true. I don't know whoever thought that, but I, I mean, I read, I, not until this moment on The Nerdist uh, I, have I told people that I was that little when that happened. But Did uh, you feel, so when you say like you like people to feel less alien, did you, did you feel that way when you were growing up? No. No, I don't. Th- I think I just thought. Beyond- no, I don't know that I was any unhappier than any other little kid. I just had a really bleak way of dealing with it. That's all. An uninformed way of dealing with it. Sure. Um, no, I think you know. I didn't get something I wanted. And that was it. <laughs> I don't think it was anything. You know. I don't think I had a good, strong concept of what uh you know what life was perhaps right. <laughs> at this age and so but uh, the good news is that it's given me a great joke <laughs> uh, all these years but but my point is yes i told you know i t- and, uh, y- 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 you know uh, yeah i've told i've told that oh I, n- especially now i probably um i mean i think as i developed as a performer um i think that i felt more and more that the more i could be myself the, the the better off I was. Do you think that's part of the goal? Is that is narrowing the gap between 
the staged character and then your real self? Or I, I think for me it has been um, just getting that absolute comfort um, with the crowd. And by the way, it's not what everyone does. Um, and 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 I mean, I know guys who do the exact same thing every night, and um, it's brilliant, and the audience loves it. And but I like to, you know, I like to find the show within the audience that's there. Um, I love my favorite part of the night is just talking to the audience. I, I do the time honored. Where are you from? What do you do for a living? And in this way, little biographies of audience members emerge. Yeah, I love. I, that's and my. I love that. I use that from which to set my sails. So I absolutely, in truth, do not know where things are going. I mean, I, I usually close with. You know, it's, the closer has always been an issue for me, actually. I mean, generally speaking, what I close with is, thank you, good night, I'm leaving. Well, it's hard. Sometimes it's really hard to, because I love to, I like do 40% crowd work, because that's, it makes the show different for yeah. you, and it makes the show different if someone sees the show twice, Yeah, and it's more personal. But I've, I'm wondering if you found that it can be hard, because comedy is so much about having a communal, intimate experience that when you're doing the show about the audience and then all of a sudden you flip gears and go, okay, here's a completely other thing I'm going to talk about now, it can be hard to follow the crowd work with material because the audience is like, well, that's not about us anymore. We had this shared experience. Well, part of it is sometimes somebody will say something, and sadly, this is, this is a character flaw in me as a human being to begin with. I somehow always turn stuff to a conversation about me. I, I don't do it intentionally. It's it's why I don't do eulogies. <laughs> you just flat, flatly just, won't do it. Yeah. I'm like, well, Bob was a great guy. But listen, this morning. <laughs> she was a really great person. Let's talk about the pie I gave her that killed her. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, as nice as she was, I find. <laughs> I couldn't get out of the room fast enough. Yeah, I, I, I really do do that. I don't intentionally do it. And I find it just a horrible trait. Um, but I really do do that. Everything ends up being about me. And uh, so my act kind of does that too. I'll start out talking to the person about the things that I ask them about. The, and I'm genuinely interested. Don't get me wrong. I always say to people, it's not that I'm interested. It's not that I'm not interested in other people. It's just that I often can't hear them over the sound of my own voice. <laughs> but I'm, I'm very interested. So, uh, yeah. And so I found this way again to allow myself to be myself for years i sort of fought that that um tendency uh, uh, uh you know and finally i just went no nah, just 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 say what strikes me just and so sometimes somebody will tell me something about themselves and i i jettison uh <laughs> it, it, you know in, inadvertently not not in an intentional way but i do i end up going oh that reminds me of the time when i did blah blah this book the totally unscientific study of the search for human happiness is sort of the sequel to uh because it's largely memoir-ish um, it is sort of the sequel to my other largely memoir-ish book, um, which is called um, There's Nothing in This Book That I Meant to Say. And that book, There's Nothing in This Book That I Meant to Say, is uh, the – I allowed myself to uh, to do that thing where I switch from talking about one thing to talking about myself. I allowed it to be the framework of the book. So um, there's nothing in this book that I meant to say is a series of biographies of um, uh, huge historic figures 
And in the telling of their story, I tell my own. <laughs> That's amazing. And so I, the, my f- first test chapter was Abraham Lincoln. And I, ha- I had the idea. I mean, the idea just dawned on me one day. I'm like, that's what it is. That's what it has to be. And so I, but I tested it out, you know. So I did some bunch of research about Abraham Lincoln and I began to write. And I just said to myself, just go where it takes me. And so I begin to write a legitimate biographical information on Abraham Lincoln. And I get as far as his mother died of milk disease before I thought to myself, my mother had a headache for a really long time. <laughs> Same and thing. so I would jump off and I would tell the thing about me and then I would continue talking about Lincoln. And uh, obviously I've never emancipated slaves, but I, I did when I had uh, babysitters used to come home early. <laughs> sure. Um, sure. I mean, you very can see. Similar. You can yeah. see. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, a lot of, lot of similarities between me and Lincoln when you get down to When you to really it. start to break it down, exactly. you, you can see you know, how many We're both just human, after all. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right? I mean, it, they're interchangeable. The biographies are almost interchangeable, save the log cabins. Yeah. But very, yeah. very the, the, similar. The, the, the skeleton. Yeah. Yeah. That explains the stovepipe hat you're wearing today. Yeah. The tall yeah. stovepipe. Which is the one that fell off my head when I <laughs> smashed my head on the railroad tie climbing up from the lower parking lot to the upper parking lot at the Nerd Melt. What is what was your relationship to what was the comedy ecosystem at that point? You guys obviously all were knew each other. You were aware of each other. Were there factions and groups and circles? Was Who, it where? super competitive in the com- in the comedy in the when you're touring in the eighties? You know, when you were really, really touring. Oh, in the yeah, 80s. it was all, it was certainly competitive. I mean, everybody who was an MC wanted to be a middle act. Everybody who was a middle act wanted to be a headliner. Um, you know, we all did. Um, and uh, although I had a secret weapon, um, which was, I figured out um, pretty early on that I didn't need to move up a ladder, <laughs> I, I needed to be really good. Because I got, you know, I just was never going to be considered by the powers that be. I never was going to be. I wasn't going to be, you know, the people in Boston weren't going to, you know, hire me to be in the slot that I wanted to be. So what I finally figured out was I'm going to be like a really good MC, you know, so that, so eventually, uh, so that eventually somebody looked like an idiot for not for That's not hiring really me. Really smart way to do it because or moving you're up not, a slot. You're not you're not focusing on something that's far off. You're focusing right. about what you can do within the moment right. to make that the I'm best experience. I'm not in charge of what other people choose. I'm not in charge of what other people like. I'm not I'm only in charge of me and how I'm working. And so I did figure out uh, pretty I got to say pretty early on just to uh, just to work my ass off at being good at what I was doing to the degree that if if people weren't sort of scooping me up to 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 have me they they looked a little foolish and um it worked pretty good actually yeah we i mean we were all certainly competitive uh with one another there was a fun thing when I when I worked out of San Francisco and I hung out with all the open micers that were at my same you know we always call it graduating class you know they were right. um, and uh, and they were fun and we had a really good time together a lot in the midst of a certain amount of dramatic parrying for position that was also there um, I sort of liken it sometimes to um, when I read uh, oh what was the uh, I'm gonna, uh, what was the name of the book about uh, Van Gogh. Um. Uh, oh, what's the matter with me, Irving Stone? Um, uh, 
Van Gogh. Van Gogh. Lust for Life. That's that was the one. right. Not yeah, on the tip yeah, of my tongue. Yeah, yeah, no, it wasn't on mine either. I read Lust for Life years ago, and uh, I've never figured out, by the way, why Irving Stone thought he knew what Van Gogh said to his brother. I, <laughs> that, that's a bit of a stretch. My friend Jonah Ray always talks about how, like, the history specials. He's like, he gets so annoyed by guys who go, "The thing you got to understand about Caesar, like, what are you, yeah, what are really? you talking about? <laughs> you fucking, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, and not for a moment am I comparing myself or my brethren to Van Gogh but I do remember having this feeling that there's a period where he went to Paris to be with the Impressionists and they used to sit in cafes drinking and talking about art and one day according to Irving Stone anyways it sort of dawned on Van Gogh that while they were talking about art they weren't doing it right you know and somewhere in San Francisco it you know I used to hang out with this group of guys and again it was fun and we talked about stand-up comedy all the time and we talked about we always talked about the people who went to LA and sold out <laughs> we were very angry but about secretly everyone wanted to go to LA and sell out dying yeah. to go to LA and sell out could not wait to go to LA would you know would would, would kill our best friend to get to go to LA until then and fuck those jerks yeah, yeah can you believe it you know God. somehow the people if they were making any money off the, what they were doing then somehow they weren't true artists who came up with that idea uh, but anyway so I I, uh, I I did eventually leave San Francisco and uh, for a while I commuted back and forth but i went to la to sell out as, as quickly as i possibly could um but oh I, what i started to say was there was this really fun period where so you know i was a boston comic and now i was a san francisco comic um but i still just worked the clubs in san francisco and then um somebody started um a club in sacramento and the um you know the pipeline for their comics was a lot los angeles but a lot San Francisco. They get their headliners from LA and they'd get their openers and middle acts like from San Francisco. And um, uh, this guy was one of the many club owners that figured out this business formula that since you were going to have somebody in every week, you don't have to rent a hotel room. You can uh, rent an apartment and have a waitress go in and vacuum once a week. The comedy condo. The comedy condo. Yeah. It's a horrible, the horrible thing. Jizz-soaked coke. Oh, my God. Just lined on the, oh. I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. No, so I have stayed in some vulgar places. But um, what was cool about that, because this was pretty early on. So for most of us, certainly for me, this was like my first you know, road job where I lived someplace else I was here for a week and then I was going to go home again and I was working comedy every night while I was gone you know it wasn't like the Greyhound bus where there were nights where I, I didn't work um, and uh, and again because he got his headliners mostly from LA I met a bunch of really great uh, Garrett Shandling and I met that way Larry Miller and I met that way um, I, I forget who all else um, uh, but you, it was like going away to camp. You know, you spend the week with these guys. Uh, Gary and I booked ourselves together in a bunch of places afterwards because we enjoyed hanging out uh, uh, so much, um, you know, uh, and, and then I get to watch these really good performers do their thing. But I, I, I look back a little bit lovingly on that that stretch where, you know, where you were with – you were with someone else and you spent time with them during the day and you became friends. And, you know, I mean, I, 
uh, I was a big postcard writer too. You know, I'd get everybody's addresses and I'd write to them from wherever. But you know, even, it was even, fun. even when you, and I think that's, I think there's almost a little bit of a danger with people now always seeking a safe space. Like I need my safe space. I need my safe space. Obviously there are aggressive what situations. You you safe space. Like a place where they feel comfortable. People feel like, you mean to perform? I just mean in life. Oh, in my, in life. In life, just like I need a safe space. You know, I've never heard that phrase before. It's a very popular phrase <gasps> where essentially, if if anyone feels uncomfortable, they go, "I need a safe space." And, and really, yeah, and and but and and it comes from a good place of protecting people from very toxic, aggressive situations. But I think there's also a, I think there's also a certain skill set that people don't learn, which is. How to because when I look back at times when I was uncomfortable, that's where I learned the most, or that's where I grew the most. Not like in danger, not like my person was in danger. Yeah. But I mean like times where I felt uncomfortable was where I learned the most or grew the most. Or I look back fondly and go, Hey, that was kind of a you know, I lived in a shitbox and I I ate dry ramen for a month, but fuck, what an incredible time. You know, like you yeah. got through it. You just got through it. Yeah, and people say to me all the time, well, what if your kids want to be comics? Uh, first of all, my kids don't want to be comics. And so, but, but they go, well, what if they took off on a Greyhound bus? They, well, okay, they didn't. Uh, but uh, I think that would be okay with me, you know? If they I think, were finding their way. Right, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't know all of what they do. Actually, they're all young adults now, so I, I don't know all of what they do. They lie to me anyways. I don't know. <laughs> let's let's be honest. I don't know anything about what they do. I've said, I've said to all three of my kids, I go, you know, when people ask me how you are, the only thing I can, I, I feel that I can say for certain is that you're alive. <laughs> I said, you know, beyond that, everything, like I'm so sick of saying to somebody, well, he's doing the blah, blah, blah. And right. then a couple of weeks later, I find out, no, he's not. And then having to say to the same person, like, oh, well, he didn't really do the blah, blah, blah. I just thought he was doing the blah, blah, blah. No, it turns out he's Parents are always never... horribly misinformed. Oh, horribly it's misinformed. awful. It's, it's awful. It, it's horrible. And I, I don't know. I didn't, I, I, mean, I mean, I had no relationship with my parents when I was my kids' ages. And so, I, you know, I, 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 so I have no practice at that. But, oh, it's terrible. Did you not get along with your parents or you're just severed from them? Here's, here's the thing with me and my parents. Um, I don't know that I did or didn't get along with them any more than anybody else my age did or didn't get along with their parents. I simply felt at a certain point that the thing that I wanted or needed, and this is an incredibly selfish approach, but it's the one that I took. Um, I was looking for peaches. And my parents, uh, this is not real, but in metaphor, ran a hardware store. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And every day, when I, when I would visit my parents when I was a young adult, and I did visit them sometimes then, I, it's like I walked into their hardware store and said, perfectly innocently, where do you keep your peaches? And they looked at me just like, what? We don't have peaches. They weren't keeping their peaches from me. Just didn't have them. They didn't have. You them. wanted something soft and sweet and delicious, and they had pokey stabby things. Right, precisely. Yeah. They just they just didn't have and and to that same ends. I mean, I think they went into my store that had something entirely different from what they. I think they had the same experience with. Well, me. that entirely informs the idea of feeling alien. 
If you feel like it entirely informs that idea. And that's why oh, don't you think everybody feels alien? Yeah, like, don't but you to think, a degree. And, in fact, you know, those of us who feel alien like to think that we're the only ones who feel alien because that's part of the alien feeling. But um, no, I think everyone does. And I, and I, uh, I scream this from every mountaintop from which I can scream it. Um, social networking, iPhones iPads and computers are making it worse, not better. And cruelly, they have usurped the words of relationships like friends uh, or social um, in their horrible, you know, quest to take our attention and our money. And I don't know that they set out to take our souls, but by God, they've made a big uh, headway, anyways, uh, towards doing that. I mean, listen, as someone who you know kind of agrees with you and still uses social media quite a lot, I would say it's not even just that they took our souls. I, we willingly handed over. We rushed to give it to them. Well, we did, but we yes, we did. Um, but I will say, um, uh, apparently, Bill Maher said a couple weeks ago that they are the cigarette companies of our time, and he's absolutely right. They, you know, my my son, um, I, I talk about this a little bit in, in, in my book, The Totally Unscientific Study of the Search for Human Happiness. Um, I, I talk about it mostly comedically in the book, but also one of the things about my book is that it's not entirely comedic. It is funny. That's its number one job is to be funny. And it has, as you said, Lily Tomlin um, gives it a lovely blurb on the front. And on the back is the who's who of comedy. And Trisha Yearwood. Dick Van Dyke, Carl Reiner, Garrison Keillor, Dick Cavett. Yeah, not too shabby, huh? Not too bad yeah. at all. So it's a funny book. Um, but it also, um, uh, Kirkus Reviews says that uh, it, uh, what did it say? It gives more than it promises. And what they're referring to is that it's also a, a very raw and honest book. And, uh, and so everything in it is not funny. And one of the uh, w- one of stories, Stories that ends up getting told in the book is the story of my my son's really tragic uh, downfall into electronics addiction, which is a real thing. I cannot scream that loudly enough. And uh, so I, 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 yeah, I talk about it uh, in the book. Um, but I used to believe when I would talk to other parents about it and try to sort of, you know, I feel a little bit like um, Bartholomew and the Ublick, you know, trying to tell people, no, watch out for this thing. It's not what you thought it was. It's it's terrible. It's not good. Um, and does it have some, are there some good applications? Has it done some helpful things somewhere? Um, yeah, I think it's probably helpful to have medical records on it. I think there's probably a few things nice that you can look something up sometimes. Yes, there are some lovely applications for it. But... In the, in the main, the way it was sold to us was that it was going to be educational for our children. That's how it got into our schools. It was going to be educational. It isn't. And, um, and it was somehow going to bring us together. It, it sold us a bill of goods that is so not true. I used to tell people that the games they deliberately made addictive, but everything else was somehow coincidentally addictive. How stupid was I? It's all purposely addicted. Addictive. There's a terrific guy. I don't know his name. Ironically, he has a TED talk um, that was going around doing the uh, like the news hour. He did an interview on the news hour, and I think he might have done the Today Show and those kinds of interview shows. Um, he was a former Google employee, and he's going around talking about you know how they intentionally made all this stuff addictive, and you know for adults, well, it's not good news, but for children. 
these are developing brains. And we're taking those developing brains and sticking them in front of those machines when their brains are, are, are developing. And so it causes brain damage. Did you, did you but is it, is it similar to what people said, you know, when, like when I was growing up, like, oh, if you watch too much TV, it's going to no. rot your brain? No, it isn't. Um, I don't think TV ever used, and I could be wrong about this, I'm not an expert on the evolution of TV. Gaming companies specifically hired behavioral psychologists to help them um, make games addictive. And in the same way, this this engineer from Google um, had these great explanations. I, I can't say what he said. I can't qu- quote him directly or remember it. But uh, a lot of stuff like quantifying, for example. You know how like on Facebook, the whole idea of likes. Sure. Uh, or for me, like I, I spend a lot of time on Twitter and I'm forever checking those numbers. <laughs> Why? Why? What, what? For what reason? How does that? You know what? What is that doing? It's but they figured out this way. He said even to the degree of when the number comes up when you hit the button, there's a certain amount of milliseconds or whatever. That oh, they you get use. that reveal, like oh, yeah, yeah. What a survey says. Yeah, exactly. I right. mean, all these things have been done. I mean, t- yes, advertising has screamed at us for years, and I'm sure a lot of advertisers have used some amount of like what was the thing they used to do subliminal, subliminal seduction messages, yeah. and all that stuff. But at least that was outlawed for heaven's sake. Right. Um, you know, uh, but this, no, there's a, to me, this is so much more diabolical. I, I don't think, other than the violence of television, and they say that if you just sit by yourself thinking um, that it's more brain exercise than watching television is, but I don't think television was ever as diabolical as what's gone on here. I mean, this is a, a grab for our attention uh, in a in a in a greedy way that I, I can't. I, I just at, at what point is rich rich enough? Did you? But is but I think that's just sort of the ever expanding bubble of capitalism, right? Where you go, oh, I'm gonna. I can I can sell a million of these. What if I could sell a billion? You yeah, know? yeah. No, that is part of it, but that's definitely part of it. I guess with this one, I guess what's sad about this one is here, here, here. When I was in the sixth grade, we were really into yo-yos. Um, Duncan had this, you know, like resurgence because yo-yos had been around for a long time, but they had like a it became a new fad, like a, a, a resurgent fad. Um, and uh, our school would let us, um, every, you know, tons of us had yo-yos, you know, spent a lot of time playing with a silly, stupid yo-yo. And um, our, our school would even let us um, have like yo-yo contests and stuff that the school, you know, was involved with. And it was fun and silly and mm, probably a waste of time, but okay, didn't do anybody any harm. Uh, then along came, I think also from Duncan, but I could be wrong, this thing called the clacker. Um, it was a, a, a plastic, a, a hard plastic circle that had two strings attached to it. On the end of each of those strings, there was a hard plastic ball made of the same translucent plastic material that the Duncan Yo-Yo was made out of. And all you had to do was take the, 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 the plastic loop in the center and um, hold it tight in your fist and pull your hand up and push your hand down, and it would make the balls clack um, above your hand and below your hand. That's all it did. Mm-hmm. There were no tricks you could do with it. Just made a clacking sound, up and down, up and down. This became a popular thing. There it is, yeah. 
And, and oh, did you find? Yeah, yeah, exactly. This Is became that like a popular old thing. Fidget spinner. Yes, exactly. Well, except for this, except for uh, one day over the PA, I was in the sixth grade. Comes this announcement. Now, I didn't yet have a clacker, but I desperately wanted one. Uh, one day comes this announcement from the principal that they have found that these clackers, when the balls collide, they can shatter. And it could fly into the eye of the user or, or someone standing around. And they said, so we, we banned them from the school, and we recommend that you not have them at home either. And I think about that story so often now because there is evidence upon evidence upon evidence that these, these computer machines, these smartphones, these iPads are doing damage to our children in, in schools. They're not helping with the educational process at all. All, zero, none. In fact, they're making things worse. And we, my generation of adults, don't have the balls to do what our principal did, right? And we were pissed in the sixth grade, by the way, when we said we can have a, fuck you, we can have a clacker. I'm getting the clacker. No one stopped me for the end. They can't fucking tell us what to do. You know what? They, if we have them at recess, they can't stop us for having them at recess. It's, it's not, if we, what if I keep it in my desk? I'm, not, I'm getting a clacker. Fuck you. You know, but the, 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 the principal decided that she would take the slings and arrows of the dislike of the students and, and because she was doing this thing that adults are supposed to do. And it was she was protecting us. Well, there might be I mean, there might be an occasional I, I'll bet there are schools that experiment with, you know, no electronics rules or I'll tell no. you, when my son began to, you know, I had to get him someplace where there were no electronics. I, I had to, you know. I, this is a few years back now. Things may have changed slightly since then. But I was looking for a, a residential program that did not allow electronics. And I had to hire what's called an educational consultant, I think it's called. It is a shitload of money. And their job is to know all the programs around the country. I told this guy what I needed. And he was like, ah, I uh, get that. He found two. One was in Texas, one was in Virginia. And the one in Virginia, the only reason they didn't use electronics was because they live in tents. So oh. my poor son lived in a tent for, uh, in Virginia for a year. And, uh, you know, we'd drive past goddamn Confederate flags. And I just said, you know what? Get, you know, I have to, you have to weigh, right? He's, 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 it's damaging his brain. Was it helpful, or do you think you get older are going to be like, eh, my mom made me go to school in a fucking tent? No, it was, it was helpful. He did tell me this one thing, you know. He was in wilderness programs. He was in this. He was in that. I mean, I tried like hell. Um, he did tell me this one thing uh, that I think everyone needs to hear loud and clear. He said to me, he said, you know, Mom, uh, during the entire year, those cravings never went away. People have to hear that. You know, I was a drinker. I don't drink anymore. Me too. A, a year later, I can't tell you that I ever felt cravings, right? I, I mean, I don't crave alcohol now. I, 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 you know, I wouldn't call it a craving. Do, do, do I occasionally think about it? Sure, absolutely. But you don't feel like a deep. I don't. I don't. It wouldn't. I would not describe it as a craving. I would describe it as a stupid idea sometimes, but not as a craving. People have to hear. This experience of this boy, what it tells us is, although I firmly believe that this is real addiction that's taken place with electronics, it may be an addiction unlike anything we are familiar with. 
partly because it starts so young. I mean, even if you're a heroin user, and I never was, thank goodness, um, but even if you're a heroin user, you don't generally begin at three. And so we don't know what that kind of early exposure will do in the long run. We don't have the answer to that. Well, there's not a long run yet. Really. Right. Precisely. So um, we And will... so it's not worth the risk. There's a terrific book called Glow Kids by a guy that I know named Dr. Nicholas Carderas. And he is one of the experts on this topic. And, and there were no experts until just a couple of years ago. Um, and uh, But Nick, um, you know, talks to groups about this problem. And he was telling me one of the funny things is, you know, so he describes to parents some of the awful things that can happen. And some of these parents wouldn't have even come to him if they weren't already having a problem at home. Um, and uh, he describes to them the, the, what happens to the brain. He knows the science of it. You know, it's, it, 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 it messes with the development of the frontal lobe. And, and, and the, I think it's the white matter in the brain, blah, blah, blah. He, he knows how to say it. I don't. But he explains all these very severe consequences of this early exposure to screen devices. And he says parents often say to him, when can they start? <laughs> is that crazy that's the parents addiction talking now right. right that's like i can't bear the idea of not using this around my kid or not having my kid use this so that i can take a break sometimes or whatever and so this is you know it's like saying well we recommend that you not have your kid play on the freeway right and people going well is there an age <laughs> where <laughs> you know not there's not the always freeway. traffic on the freeway is there an age that he could you know recognize cars and then move out of the way like well what were just really quickly what were some of the signs that made you because, you know, I'm sure there are people listening who go, oh, what is she talking about? I played games when I was a kid and I'm fine. So what, how, how would people know what the, the sign? How would parents know what the signs of uh, electronics addiction, addiction are? Uh, horrible, tra- hor- horrible tantruming. The, the, the frontal lobe is the part of the brain that uh, controls self-control, um, judgment, reasoning, and planning. And uh, those are not strong, particularly in boys, to begin with. Boys' frontal lobe don't come in uh, between 25 and 30. Now, I didn't read the information that my manager wanted me to send you about you. Yours may have come in much earlier. But on average... (laughs) On my frontal lobe, the whole write-up was you missed the article. Yeah, yeah. No, it's... You you know, a lot of you aren't seeing him, of course. You're just hearing him. Let me tell you. Huge Huge, frontal lobe. Biggest, widest lobe. Um, You know... What happened with Thomas is he lost interest in anything else, like any other addiction. Nothing else meant anything to him, and he was a very uh, uh, active kid. He, there were, he did lots of things, and he just got to where he wouldn't do anything else. This was all he wanted to do. Uh, I don't have a, a door at home without a hole in it. Um, everything erupted into some sort of tantrum that always somehow boiled down to you know, electronics. I foolishly, stupidly tried to use it as like a reward. You know, how does that work? Okay. That would be like saying to a heroin addict, well, if you do a good job today, I'll give you some more heroin. It doesn't work that way. That's not, that's not the right relationship between those two things. And a lot of things I think I kept chalking up to other things like, oh, you know, we had some other difficulties in our life. Oh, it's that. Or, oh, it was this. Or I think what's happened is as parents were a bit of a frog in a pot, so a lot of this stuff I think we're thinking is somehow perfectly normal. Mm-hmm. It's not perfectly normal. It's caused by these things. Um, 
you know, they just I, there was just a thing on the news hour the other night talking about how uh, there's a woman who did a terrific article in the Atlantic talking about how um, the uh, increase in suicides in in young people has like I think it's up forty percent. You know, you have to look around yourself and say, okay, what has changed in the last X number of years environmentally, radically, that would cause a spike like that? And there's only one thing. You know, there's only one thing, and that is the proliferation. Man, we could not drive by a goddamn billboard for an Apple product without having a screaming tantrum in our car. You know, just the sight of that stuff. Because he wanted it. Yep. Just the sight of it would set him off, you know, and uh, it was entirely my fault. I put him in front of a computer when he was when he was three. I never gave him a smartphone. I never gave him an iPad. I never gave him a laptop, but he found him. You know, he found his way to all that stuff um, because that's what an addict does. Sure. And people need to know that. How's he and, doing now? Uh, better, better. Much better, actually, but it didn't happen right away. Even after the year, you know, he got some money in his pocket when he got home and got a job, and he went out and bought another one and just tanked, but just straight. I mean, so rapidly. Even he said to me, he said, "You know, I thought that I could get this thing and keep it sort of on the side so that nobody knew, and that I could handle it." And oh well, they, yeah, that's an addiction thing. You can't like. Right. Oh, I'll just only drink on Sundays at, you know, and it's always going to creep back in. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's definitely a sign of addiction. But what's interesting about hearing you talk about this and also knowing about your book, The Totally Unscientific Study and the Search Search for Human Happiness, and also your podcast is this sort of idea of uh, finding knowledge. Because the Poundstone Institute is essentially... Oh, hey, I, you know, here are things I don't really know about, so I'm going to have scientists on who are going to describe what's going on. And the, and the show's really funny, by the way. Thank and it's you. in front of a live audience. And so it's, it's you know, and uh, it's produced by NPR. Yeah. And, uh, and so it's, but it's, but it's a, but it's a really great idea. It's, it's nice to hear someone say, hey, I don't know about these things, so I'm going to let experts describe them to tell me about these things so i can actually learn i let experts tell me and then i mock the knowledge <laughs> <laughs> the knowledge is there but i mock it uh, yeah it's both it's uh i always put uh, when i post about it i often put a little hashtag with uh, laugh learn laugh because uh and if i have a lot of space i put laugh learn laugh laugh right because i think that's i think that's the uh right the the balance. By the way, as we're wrapping this up, I, I did want to ask you about just a, a couple things. Number one, when did you develop? Because in uh, in your special from San Francisco, Cats, Cops, and Stuff, uh, you are you you did have this very distinctive. Do you still sit on your leg on a stool? Because you're the only comic that I remember that actually just sort of like somehow just kind of crouched and folded in half on a stool. I do still sometimes. I haven't sat down. In a, it's different, different nights. I haven't sat down in a long time. But it was very was just... comforting. It was very comforting because it's a very non-aggressive way to come at the audience. And, I, and hearing that you came out of the Boston comedy scene, which was very, a very aggressive comedy style, but, you know, sitting, like, sort of crouching on a stool on one leg is sort of an inviting, like, hey, you know, he's, I was just... You know, come on in. You know, it's a very uh, it's a very comfortable way to present yeah, material. It was all part of my, uh, you know, be relaxed, be yourself. Uh, 
you know, uh, move. Besides which, well, not back then, but now, you know, I do when I do, uh, you know, a theater, I do like two hours. Oh wow! Um, and so at a certain point, you have to sit down. <laughs> <laughs> Self preservation. How much when, can you pace back and forth on the stage? Yeah, honestly, right, right. Make sure these people see me. Make sure these people see me. I, I, I often lay down on the stage. I guess I haven't done that in a little while, but I do lay down on the stage, and um, sometimes I do a little foot puppet show. <laughs> when when Craig Ferguson was uh, had they had announced that they were not going to do that show anymore, and there was only a I don't know a couple weeks left, I was one of the you know I was, I was on within that last couple of weeks, and uh, I love Craig Ferguson, and uh, so I went, before I went on. I said, you know, I said to the executive producer, I go, is it all right to talk about that he's not going to do it anymore? And he said, yeah. And I go, okay, then I know what I'm going to do. And so I went on and I laid down in front of his desk and I put my feet up on the desk to do a foot puppet show. And uh, I think it was me talking to him about um, leaving the show. He must have show. loved that. He, people tell me, because uh, I wasn't, I couldn't see the look in his face. People tell me that, no, he just had this, like, look of, like, not horror, but, like, what the hell is this kind of a look. I know, but that's what so much of a show is about, breaking formats and stuff. Well, I think I think for him it's fine when he breaks the oh, format, gotcha. you know what I mean? But he's like, you know, and I did, like, my Craig Ferguson impersonation as I did my one foot being him <laughs> talking. and um, But I, I, I was really, I mean, I was almost in tears on that, ep- on that episode just over the idea that he was leaving because, for one thing, it was a fun place for me to go do sure. my thing, um, and I was just so sorry. I, I just, I just thought he should stay there. I know, but I think the schedule was driving him a little crazy too. I mean, he's very punk rock, and I think having to do, he had to learn how to do the show every day, and that's why he would rip up the cards and stuff because he just couldn't fathom the idea of doing the same structure every single day. Yeah, and uh, but he's just the best. He's yeah. just such a sweet guy, and so oh, funny he is a sweet so, guy, so and lovely. he was very good at that. Um, uh, he he made that uh, he reinvigorated that 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 late night show format. And I did, think. Did you did you do did you do stand up on SNL in like 1984? I did just one time. Robin Williams was the guest host that episode because they and, used to have uh, stand up on SNL every once oh, in a while. Oh, did they? I did very I, rarely. I, I never. You know, honestly, I'm terrible. I I only watched. The episode that I was on, <laughs> and that was during the Eddie Murphy years. Yes, and then the, and then I watched you know Bill Murray and Chevy Chase and those guys. How was how was the stand up on the on SNL? Um, it was okay. It was hard. It, it was really hard. I mean, I was pretty new still. Uh, you know, I was twenty twenty three. So I was. Uh, I think I was twenty three. I might have even been twenty two. Twenty three probably. And uh, you know. I, I was not all that good, to be totally honest with you. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it was a, a uh, I think I was a little deer in the headlights. And when, at what point, did you feel like you figured it out? Or I mean, I don't know if anyone. Well, fully, when, the, fully when that happens, I'm gonna call you. <laughs> I'm gonna instant message you on Twitter. Uh, oh, I don't feel like I've figured it out at all yet. Uh, I just every night I keep trying. Well, uh, people can buy the totally unscientific study of the search for human happiness, uh, which is your book. Uh, which uh, helped Lily Tomlin get another cat, uh, as you will see on the cover. Yeah, and then uh, and then live from the Poundstone Institute, which um, apparently you had been banned from Nerdist. You are now unbanned. Oh, boy, wait till I wait till I tell my coworkers. 
<laughs> you can both, you can park wherever you want. Yeah. And if you go by that like railroad tie thing yeah. that's right there at that Is there a opening, piece of your brain matter yeah, on there you'll still? probably okay. see like not my brain, but surely there's some of my skin as sure. Yeah. No, <laughs> Just I mean some I strands I of, of dark it of was, dark hair there. Yeah. It was it was one of those where you hit it so hard that it's a, that wah wah kind of pain. Oh yeah. Where you have the first pain. But, you know, like there's a really big pain coming in a it's few coming. seconds. It's yeah, coming. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So awful. you got a grip to brace for the brace for impact. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, Great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I had, to, I had to get ice. It was ugly. Well, I just, you know, we just rent the space. So the person to sue would really be the owner <laughs> of the shop. Really? Because they turned really me on to you. No, I don't think so. <laughs> it doesn't sound right. I don't think so. Yeah, I think that would be Gaston. So, uh, um, I'm, but I'm sure he'll be fine with it. He's a very yeah, sweet guy, yeah, yeah. and he uh, loves to be cool. sued. Loves it. Loves it. Sue me. Yeah. <laughs> so, thank you so much for coming on. It was Man, a genuine was honor fun. and a pleasure. Oh, and, thank uh, you very much. And I hope to have you back on. Yeah, hey, I hope should, I get to be back on. People should listen to your podcast. Are you performing live anytime soon? Do you have any live dates? All over. Uh, yeah, actually. Yeah, I, I am. Well, you know, I tell people to go to my website because that has my schedule. Because I, I don't know it that well in my head. I forget where I am this week. So I know that I'm leaving at 5.30 in the morning to get there. <laughs> 5.25 is my flight. And then I'm in I'm in Rutland, Vermont on Saturday. But I'm someplace on Friday. I can't remember. Um, and, uh, yeah, but I tell people to go to just, what is it, like, I don't know, Poundstone dot com or some com, and i have my schedule there and then uh you know the podcast tapes here in los angeles um currently at nerd indefinitely at, the, <laughs> at nerd melt forever at nerd melt <laughs> on two on tuesday nights at seven o'clock and uh yeah I'm going to give you my info, and if you ever have any problem, you just reach out to me, and I will I will solve it in a half a second. I'm going to be so the man when I return to when I return to work, you know, because we didn't tape this week, but we last week because the holiday, but we are next, and uh, you know when I come in. And say, I solved this problem, you know, because I'm not the executive. I dealt with this shit. Yeah. You can tell yeah. your manager, like, oh, I fucking got shit done. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Uh, what do you have to do is you got to make a couple of phone calls. <laughs> got to know who to call. What know. you have to do is accidentally do the podcast of the guy who's in charge of the thing. <laughs> yeah. What you got to do is not read any stuff ahead of time. Don't prepare in any way. She really did. She said it to me like three times. And I go, yeah, don't. Uh, no, don't send me. <laughs> No, not again. Okay, maybe I'll yeah. maybe next yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna. I could have gotten away with telling her I did read stuff, but I guess not now. No, now it's yeah. now there's a public record. Cat, cats out of the bag. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. The end. Now leaving nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. <laughs>